Up next on Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss outsourced DNS, virtual machine appliances, and programmers as library users instead of library writers from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. My lymph nodes are swollen. My, my throat is really sore, but I have, like, no cold symptoms at all. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. the other... I've been talking a little bit about this on Twitter. I try not to make Twitter like my personal little let-me-report-how-I-feel mechanism. No, but you can but, use it as your primary care physician. That's different. Yes. Well, doctor... <laughs> doctor, uh, lazy, lazy internet, lazy webs. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I think if I go, they're just going to give me antibiotics or... Oh, my God. Know. I'm sorry. What, what, what is going on over sorry. there? I just, I just plugged in my, my, my iPhone to recharge. <laughs> that's, all, that's all I did. Wow. <laughs> Insanity. Okay. So, but, but I'm feeling okay now, so I, I think we'll be good. Now, did you have anything you want to start with? I have some items if you don't. Uh, no, fire away. I got, some, I got some listener questions all queued up. Uh, I did want to mention being a huge fan of the face, uh, fake plastic rock that uh, the Beatles rock band was released last oh, yeah. week. Beatles. And does it have uh, a lot of songs? A few songs? It has 45 songs, but the Beatles catalog is so big and so good and so deep that like, you're going to be disappointed. Uh, in does it have a day in the life? Uh, it does not. Oh, come uh, on. It's got 45 tracks. You can look at the track list online. It's, it does have some good stuff for sure. And there's some stuff that also makes me wonder why they included it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, generally, it's great. And it's, it's a really fun way to experience the Beatles if you're a fan at all. Even if you're not a fan, it will kind of introduce you to their music. And it's, it's very, very respectful, deeply respectful game in terms of the experience and how they present it. And, huh? Really? Uh, it's kind of like a love letter to the, to the band oh. that you can sort of experience and play. I mean, that to me is the big attraction, is that I, I love music. I've always loved music. What's your favorite? And this is uh, one step up. What's well, this, this is one step up from, you know, listening to it on your iPod is one thing, but then you're in a group, you're experiencing the music, you're actually sort of playing along, you can hear the different, hear the bass line, hear the drum line, and the subtleties of some of the singing and guitars. But the big innovation here is the, the vocal harmonies. So you can have up to three people singing. Mm-hmm. And there's actually three, and depending on the song, there's one to three different tracks, because the Beatles did harmonize a ton which I didn't even appreciate until this game came out. But like they're constantly singing. You know, there's, there's background vocals, there's vocals, and there's times they're singing together and apart. It's really cool. It teaches you something about the music, more so than just passively receiving it, which is why I'm a big fan. But I recommend it. So my, my favorite song to play? Yeah. Uh, I like the White Album type stuff. Really? Like, they I have like, uh, do they have Helter some, Skelter? They, they have Helter Skelter. They do? They have, oh, my God. And does it have like Charles Manson? Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> No, no, no. It doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't go with... This is a family game. Okay. Cool. <laughs> I was but, uh, wondering what the videos are of. Yeah, but one of my favorite tracks to play at the moment is Back in the USSR. I love that song, and that's really, really fun that's to play in the song. game. It's a real blast. So, yeah, so that's, that's the, the fake plastic rock front. I just wanted to mention that because I'm such a huge fan. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about that we actually did change 
based on actual problems we were having was we, we have changed DNS providers. Wait, wait. Okay. First of all, it's an excellent thing to talk about, but I would like to point out that that was a segue. We are no longer talking about Beatles Rock Band. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to announce good. that. Well, how would we have known that if unless you had pointed that out? <laughs> we were talking about was something else. I was confused for a minute there. I thought so maybe our listeners might be too. Um, here, here's the uh, DNS. Well, what if our DNS servers are named, you know, John, Paul, Ringo, and George? Question. That. Okay. Here's something I don't understand about DNS. Because I, I, maybe I'm wrong, and I, I definitely am with you on the philosophy of there's no reason to do things in-house that we can outsource that are not our core competency. Totally, totally agree. But, but, maybe I'm old school, but there's a little program called NameD, and it comes free with Linux, and you give it your DNS file, and you run it, and it serves up your DNS file. Right. And it never no, fails. You could, and it never you could, fails to serve things, and it just works perfectly. Yeah. No, you can certainly run your own DNS. I mean, to, to me, the, the value add mm -hmm. of having somebody in, like a, a company that they specialize in DS doing this mm -hmm. is that they, A, they have a global network, meaning they have like 10 data centers, like all over the globe. Well, so, so what? The internet has distributed. Well, it is, but that first DNS lookup isn't. I mean, it does actually have to look it up. So that's what gets confusing about DNS is it's so heavily cached, right? So, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but... And not, yeah, there's no reason to have to. Exactly, exactly. If most people, if somebody goes to Stack Overflow in India, chances are his ISP already knows where Stack Overflow is. Uh, Assuming he's using his ISP's DNS server, so it doesn't go to the, it doesn't go to the, us or them anyway. But you would assume there's some lookup interval, uh, say hour. Eventually, that stuff expires out of the cache, right? I yeah. Mean, okay. So once an hour, somebody has to come all the way to us. Right. So so that one person will pay that one penalty, which can be surprisingly large. I was actually looking up somebody had done some benchmarks. It wasn't this was not a corporate sponsored thing. This was an actual guy researching this and he was actually graphing showing the difference with like his ISP's DNS versus like another DNS provider that was a professional DNS provider and actually was substantially lower in terms of resolve time. Now, where this gets muddy is because of the whole caching thing, which is incredibly complicated. That's one of the weirdest things about DNS. Um, but I do believe there's there is some value. It's debatable, like how much dollar value you want to put on that. I don't know, but there's some value to me in having a, a worldwide set of data centers where they specialize in this stuff. Because when people can't get snake to your site, oil, I mean, I say this is snake oil. No, no, no. Let me let me go back though, because we actually our our, our registrar is GoDaddy, and so we were using GoDaddy's name servers. So here's what would happen. Well, that's we terrible. Would go Those in, are bad name servers because they're overloaded because everybody's using them, and GoDaddy doesn't care. Well, that's, so that's probably bad. true. Yeah, uh, but, but if you run your own name server, uh, right? We well, one thing we thought about. Well, you're you're taking me on tangents. You're not let me tell the story. But <laughs> yes, we could we could run a name server with us and with you, and then we'd have a you know coast two coast name server. You don't even need the coast. That's done by the caching inside the internet already. So you only need one name server, as long as you don't have multiple data centers. Because because if your name server goes down. It's because your data center is down. Well, maybe not. Maybe mm. you need a, a secondary name server, but you don't need a secondary data center. Well, I think it's a resolve time issue. I mean, you geographically uh, yeah, map. I don't, to... I don't buy it. Don't buy it. Not buying it. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's not a question of not buying. It's a question of how much value you put on that service. You would put a very low value, like a dollar, right? Yeah, that's true. So, that's a good. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, actually, I mean, no, it, because it I, is, would, I would, I would, I would, I would think that a DNS server should probably be on its own box. 
certainly as long as we're trying to distribute things. Although it could yeah, be I on a there's... utility box, it's doing a bunch of other stuff like your email. Right. I mean, it's just a question of what dollar value you put on the service. I mean, right. I, I think it does have some value. So it's debatable how much value that is. Um, so beyond the uh, – well, let me go back and explain the problem. So the problem was on GoDaddy, the DNS was actually reliable, but what we found was that if we went in and changed a setting in DNS, some unrelated – like, for example, the other day we went in and changed the IP of the mail server. This is like an internal thing for us. It doesn't really matter, but we yeah. have an IP. Yeah. And that somehow broke DNS for us. Like, we would constantly have this problem. We would go in and change something in the control panel, yeah. in GoDaddy's DNS thing, and then other unrelated things would just totally disappear for – some people in the world. Because they have written some bad and hacky and kludgy code to probably take a bunch of settings that you put on the web and rewrite a namedy.conf file, which is the, you know, the standard DNS text file. I'm, yeah. I'm guessing that there's some bug in there or something, something wonky or clunky there. And in addition to that, so there's that problem. And that, that made, like, every time we changed something, we dreaded it. Because we're like, oh, we know if we change something, even if it doesn't even relate at all to anything yeah. else in the system, it's, the potential of breaking something is high. But when you run your own DNS, this doesn't happen. You could run your own DNS, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the other problem we ran into was that occasionally people from, even without any changes, DNS would just mysteriously kind of burp. Mm-hmm. And people couldn't get to the sites. And, I mean, DNS is kind of important because if people can't yeah. get to your domain name, they, you're Agreed. down from their perspective, it even just, though if you're totally up. Maybe I, just, maybe I just had a weird experience, but I mean, the experience I've had is that the hardest part is writing a good file, the namedy.com file, because there's certain things you eventually have to learn. Like, for example, in a typical DNS file, there's a, little ser- there's a serial number, and when you make a change, you have to ra- make a higher serial number. Otherwise, you can't just edit the file and save it. You actually have to edit the file and then go change the serial number to be a higher number. And it's so easy to forget doing that. And then you're like, why is this not distributing to people? Why are their caches not invalidating? And you're like, oh, shoot, I forgot I made that change and I didn't change the serial number. Well, um, so there's, like, there's, like, there's stuff like that that if you're actually writing your own text file, you, you do kind of have to learn. And if the DNS provider that you're hiring, you know, if a part of their service is that they give you a consultant or a, kind of a DNS expert or something to make sure that you, you do that stuff right, um, that would be some sort of value added, I guess. It's just that so many of them are just running a Linux box with NameD on it and then charging you for that. And, and that's just one of those things that, you know, and you still have to give them the same text file. Mm-hmm. And I just don't get how that's a business. It's just, it's just, it's just bizarre to me. It's almost like, uh, but, but I guess it is. So. Well, like hosting bug tracking, that's a business? No, stop. That's a value there, Joel. <laughs> we have some software there. I know, I know. No, DNS is not a glamorous service. I totally agree with you. And I think yeah. everybody on the team was like, well, DNS is just ridiculously simple. Um, but to me, and again, it's debatable how much dollar value you want to put on that. I do believe there's some do- dollar value, in my opinion, to having this, you know, DNS distributed across yeah. the world. Having well, a lot of people agree with you, better. so I'm just, uh, I'm the crazy one. I, I just, I, what's debate? I will tell you that it was m- much more expensive than I thought it should be. I was, uh-huh. I did have a little bit of sticker shock after, uh, I mean, obviously this is something that was negotiated and I can't go into all the details, but uh, we came out with something we were happy with, but I will tell you that it, it was not cheap. Because <laughs> um, it's a sucker service. They only sell it to suckers. They might as well charge as much as they can. Well, I get the impression it's kind of enterprisey, And at the level yeah. that we're at, and one thing they'll ask you is how many DNS queries do you do per second? And we had no idea. I mean, how do you even measure that? Um, you know? How do you measure that? Uh, so the service we actually ended up using does question. have a graph that shows us. And I think we ended up using, I want to say, 12 queries per second. 
but that was on a weekend. And I, I think our interval was set artificially low to start with. We set it to one hour just so that everything would propagate really fast. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to turn that back up to like one day or something like that. But once you start looking at the 12 to 20 queries per second for like a major website. It, those are, it, each of those queries is basically one TCP IP packet. Uh, it's UDP, but it's just one packet. But that's I mean, one of the tiny. central ways that they sort of discriminate, you know, the enterprise. Oh, they price discriminate, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's one way they look at that. Oh, but I guess they, they're thing, like, you guys are huge because you're all over the internet. But then again, just because you're huge, that just means that they're more, more likely to be cash hits out there on the edge of the internet. Right, right. No, ca- caching is obviously a, a big part of this. But it's kind now, of bizarre, whereas if you had, if you if you were this really unique and rare website, like some kind of a coding, horrific code or something like that, um, the, then the average, you know, you're just Joe, dial up ISB in Hyderabad, India. Um, the chances are you've only got one customer going there and you're going to have to do the full, the DNS is going to go all the way back home because right. it's not cached anywhere. Whereas with Stack Overflow, there's somebody visiting Stack Overflow just about pretty much everywhere. And mm-hmm. so um, because of that popularity, it probably gets a lot more cache hits, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that Yahoo found, I don't know if you, you've probably seen this, but Yahoo did a really groundbreaking set of experiments around how many people come to a website sort of for the first time with an empty cache, uh, basically comparing cached performance versus uncached performance. And what they found was that the uncached performance, in other words, people who are coming to the site totally naked, like they've never been there before, mm-hmm. was f- way higher than they thought it was going to be. I want to say like 60%, some ridiculously large number. In other words, the cache people. wasn't helping that much? Well, that's what I'm getting at. It's like and when you're talk talking about, about the, like your web browser cache. The browser cache. cache. Talking, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so my point is that, I, oh, I, I don't know, I think yeah. we tend to overestimate how powerful, I mean, caching is great, don't get me wrong, but it's not, there's something to be said for having a fast core service when the cache isn't there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, that's where I start to add you know, a, a dollar value to the service. Now, some other things you can do with DNS that we aren't doing, but uh, some service providers offer, is you can also, they'll detect if a server is down and switch the DNS automatically. In other words, they do some kind of monitoring. This is a value-add service. They, but they you can do to, that. Well, it's nice that they provide this because that would be something that would be fairly trivial to do if you were running your own DNS. Right, but that's something they can do. But, um, uh, and but it doesn't help if you have any cache at all. Right, and they can also do some kind of load balancing as well, um, where I guess they detect. I mean, there's there's things you that's can do. Also, at they the do. Um, yeah, I mean, DNS DNS does usually. Well, the the trivial thing in a named econ file is to have something that they call round robin, which has always been implemented, where you give a you give a list of IP addresses instead of one IP address. And then the DNS server just magically picks one. I think the DNS server, yeah, I think it gives out a different one every time in, in order and in, in sort of a round-robin fashion, which is sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's not load balancing exactly. Well, it's, so it's balancing at a different nothing. level. Like yeah. the way we're doing it now with HAProxy, the request comes to HAProxy and then we balance it which in is, a very simplistic way. But which is better because then you can have a machine go down. I mean, it's just better than any kind of trying to do it in DNS. Well, they actually monitor as well. It's paired with some monitoring. They do some kind of server ping, and then if if they see that a server goes down, they'll switch your DNS. I, I'm not. I'm just throwing it out there as a value add. This is the way they. You this know, is a good. I like. Side. I like having things like little debates like this on our podcast. <laughs> well, DNS is really important. I think also you got to realize. I, and I, what I think. Really, uh, let me tell you uh, what I think. The hard part of DNS is is the two or three hours of learning that it takes you to get your name D file correct to learn about what those different timeouts mean because there's several timeout values in there. Um, and, um, you know, to learn about, you know, what an MX record is and how to do backup DNS and master-slave and um, DNS transfers, you know, where the slave is like, oh, I lost my master data. And, it, you know, there's some stuff there. There's definitely some stuff there to learn. And 
if you were to provide a service that were to make it so that you didn't have to learn that stuff, that would be uh, a vi valuable service. And it would really have to be the kind of thing where you've got some consulting help. Because just, just making a web form where you type in all the same information that's going to go in the named econ file and then in the DNS records is, uh, is not very helpful unless you provide some, you know, some, some helpful advice about how it should be done. And part of this, too, is my reaction to it. I was so fed up. I mean, we had people on, on yeah. Meta that would actually hard code all the values for all the sites because there was so much irregularity going on. Huh. Weird. I mean, it was, it was pretty traumatic. And actually, when I posted this on the blog, people were like, oh, thank you for finally doing something about this. You know, because nothing was really wrong, per se, but it just, it just sucked that every so often for an hour, you couldn't get to the site and you would have no idea why. Hmm. I mean, this is kind of a negative quality of life for the users that, you know, drive the site. You know, I mean, that, that to me has a dollar value. Um, cool. So, yeah. Anyway, so we, we, we you, hopefully have dealt try, with um, We should hear, let's do something value-added for our users. Did you ever go to dnsstuff.com? Uh, I think I've been there. So this is a website where you put in, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's full of all kinds of fantastically useful utilities um, mm -hmm. for when you're, when you're running your own DNS server. And if you're having DNS trouble, which, which we did when I tried to write the namedcon files myself, <laughs> uh, this is sort of like lint, basically, for your DNS, and it tells you all kinds of interesting things like, oh, look, you don't have a mail record, or this is in the wrong format, or this is a comment. It should be a Oh, cool. So, um, for example, I just ran it on stackoflow.com, and I got uh, three warnings. Hmm, interesting. View example Ooh, DNS report. Uh, of course, you got to pay. But there's also stuff on dnsstuff.com. Pay? Uh, pay? What is this pay talk? Well, basically, yeah. It, that's it, not worth it, Joel. That's crap. There, there is probably something free. But it, it's <laughs> just, uh, it, it's sort of, it's not really the running your DNS server for you. It's figuring out what your DNS record should be. All right, we've talked about DNS for too long. I hereby decree this subject over. No, but that was a good addition, the DNS stuff, as DNS far as stuff.com. Yeah. DNS and it has a great thing, a Whois lookup. Uh, basically, uh, IP information, which is you're always like uh, some, some nasty user is connected from a certain IP. DNS stuff is what I always use to trace it back to where that, I, where that IP comes from, what ISP owns it, where, where is it located. Um, and you can get that all for free uh, on DNS stuff. Well, DNS is an important topic. I mean, without DNS, we'd all be typing in IP addresses. .com. <laughs> uh, and that wouldn't be a whole lot of fun. That would be like uh, those old black telephones with a dial that you had to dial. Phone a rotary. On. Yeah, rotary. It would be telephone. rotary as well. Yes, typing in an IP is the rotary phone of the Internet. That's exactly. Great. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Do you so even we know had... people's phone numbers? What Do you, do you know anybody's phone number? I barely know my own phone number. Yeah. So, no. The answer is no to that. Yeah. Either. So another server-related thing we've been messing with is we did set up HAProxy, and that's working brilliantly, by the way, and I actually donated some money to HAProxy because we, right. we like it so much. And actually, the author has been commenting on our blog, and actually, he's been super helpful, Willie. So thank you, Willie. Uh, and we realized retroactively, remember how we're always talking about on Stack Overflow or Server Fault? You'll ask a question, and then people will come in and question the premise of your question, <laughs> as in... Why are you asking this? This doesn't even make any sense. You know, you shouldn't even be doing this, right? Yeah. The fact just that you use have Linux, and all question, these problems go away. The fact that you have to ask this question is indicating that you had the whole thing is wrong. Well, we actually had that experience, uh, and we didn't realize it. So, on uh, our, our servers, the way we set up HA Proxy, we set up two default gateways, and it turns out having two default gateways is just a really bad idea. Can like, I can I ask a question? Yes. Okay. Number one, HA Proxy is this on a Linux box? Or do you, yes. do you have a way it's of running this? It's on a this Linux, Linux virtual machine. So you Oh, you have a Linux virtual machine running on a Windows? Yes. Really? Are you using VMware? 
No, we're using uh, Hyper-V, which is the built-in stuff in Windows Server, uh, which works really well. Hyper-V is great. Yeah. Everybody says, you know, I, I keep hearing that Hyper-V is several years behind uh, VMware. Well, in, in what Well, regard? just like, in, just like they, they, Microsoft is about three years behind in, in feature sets and, and all that kind of stuff. But, but, a, lot the, of the but fe- I, a lot of the high-end feature sets I don't care about, though. I just want it to work right. and be reasonably fast. Right. And I, I'm pretty sure Hyper-V works for that. Now, rule of thumb for, for virtual machines is that yeah. virtual machines offer surprisingly... I did a ton of research on this back in the day, and mm-hmm. I don't think the conclusions have changed. A virtual machine offers surprisingly similar performance to native boxes. The, the part that you, you fall down on is disk performance hugely. If, if you're doing anything that has to do disk work, yeah. it's going to be brutal in a VM. Well, are you allow, um, there's, a, there's a workaround, which is you put in additional disks and you give the right. virtual there's machine. Right, there's ways to work around that, but you have to really think about that. But think about what HAProxy is doing. It's doing network uh, routing basically, and pretty much all in memory, and it's, it's really tight code. It's probably mm. C, your favorite language. Mm. Um, and, I mean, it, it doesn't really have any disk dependencies, so it's all memory and networking, and that stuff is like 90-plus percent of the speed of a full machine. And I think we, have a, we actually have a, a cacti monitor set up for the HA proxy box, and I don't think it ever goes above 3% CPU usage. Wow. Uh, yeah, so I, my point is that virtual machine appliances, I think, are totally viable. Um, um, yeah, now, now that the, the now that the chips that Intel is making support support it kind of natively. I mean, they used to kind of emulate. They used to be emulators. Yeah, that's true. I AMD was sort of ahead of the game on this. Right, right. Intel finally caught up. So right. they offer. There's some special instructions. I don't remember the details. I actually posted something about them on, on my blog. But there's mm-hmm. some certain instructions that are like really impossible to to virtualize because they're crazy. Mm-hmm. And they had to introduce like new instruction sets to get get rid of these crazy. Or workarounds, basically, for these other instructions that are really hard to virtualize. It's really an artifact of the crazy x86 architecture. What else is on that um, box? I mean, why is it virtual? What else is on uh, that physical box? Is gosh, there... a bunch of stuff. It runs our cacti monitoring. Uh-huh. It runs uh, our mail server. Oh. Which is also... You're running uh, your own mail server? <laughs> you outsource the DNS server? Uh, uh, well... We kind of have to, because if you send a lot of mail, I don't know. It just gets really weird. Okay. Don't. Um, so mail server. That's one of the classic is, things to outsource, but okay. That's a, but, but this is only for outgoing mail. This is just for notifications and stuff. Mm-hmm. This is not... I think you're thinking of this the wrong way. This is just for us to send notifications to users. This is not a, a mail server. Like, I wouldn't log in and get my mail off the server. Mm-hmm. So it's just an outgoing mail relay, basically. Um, what else are we running on there? Uh, add server stuff which is another virtual machine. Uh, Meta is running on there. And even with all that junk running on the machine, it rarely gets above, I want to say, 10% CPU usage. I mean, it's a quad-core. It's a standard server config. Cool. But yeah, you can do a ton of utility work. I mean, we, we have five servers now, so really the only risk is you know, if something bad happens to that server, we've got to be able to move the virtual machines or have copies of them. Um, That's because the, the, one of the nice things you can do with virtual machines, especially if they have like a checkpoint restore kind of thing, is get it working exactly like if, especially if it's a utility if it's not actually storing any state it's just you know like like the the, the you know your your proxy server is probably in this category where once you've got it set up if you went back to that state that would be fine and you get mm-hmm. it set up you get a vm set up perfectly and if it ever gets hacked or anything like that you just hit the you know restore previous checkpoint button roll back all the crap and Ta-da, you got, a, you got your machine back when it was pristine in perfect condition. Absolutely. I mean, Minus virtual machines are 
fantastic. I mean, I, I, I really, and I'm ex- it's exciting to have, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really sucky at the Linux stuff, but Jeff, or one of our other team members, is pretty good at it. So it's nice to have him on board so we can actually, you know, get the best of both worlds. I, I don't think that we have to use everything in the Microsoft stack. I mean, I, I just want to use whatever works. And having virtual machines makes that so much more viable mm-hmm. than it used to be. I mean, versus like, okay, i got to roll another server into the data center and, you know, install Linux on and all that stuff versus just spinning up a VM. Uh, it's, a, I think, a big, big win in terms of flexibility and tool set. Mm-hmm. So, but let me come back around to what, start, what I started this with, which was, and I'll post a link to this in the show notes. We asked a question on ServerFault about our crazy network configuration. And because we have two gateways, what happens is occasionally Windows will decide that one of the gateways sort of randomly is the right gateway. <laughs> this Correct. is a problem because it means outgoing web requests, like let's say you want to log in with OpenID. Yeah, yeah. It's going to go to the, the bit bucket instead of to Google or Yahoo or wherever it's supposed to go. So, and this doesn't last long. This usually lasts like 10 minutes and then it figures out, okay, that's the wrong gateway. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's, it's intermittent, which is even more annoying. Oh, um, let me so, tell you how I spent a week of my life once. <laughs> go ahead. Or am I? Go ahead, finish. No, I'm, I, that's pretty much that's it. Pretty it's much like, it. Don't, don't, have, don't have two gateways. It's just it's not a sane network configuration. So almost every, almost every server you can buy comes with two uh, Ethernet ports. Right, and yep, um, you know, typically you can use it to make a router. Some people will use it to have like a utility uh, network and another live network. So maybe your web server has one connection to the outside world and one connection to the SQL server that it's going to be talking to, and those can you just get more bandwidth because they're on separate networks or subnets, as they say. So there's right. a lot of usefulness to having these two uh, uh, Ethernet jacks, but sometimes uh, you're only using one of them. And in that case, if you put Windows Server on there. Um, the the default is to use DHCP that, and because and that's a reasonable default for an Ethernet port for a network port to just use DHCP to try to get an IP address, and what it'll do if it if it fails to reach a DHCP server is it it has these random it'll generate a random IP address in hopes of minimizing IP con- conflicts starting oh, yeah. with a couple of numbers I don't remember where they are I don't think it's one ninety two one sixty eight but it's something that are characteristic of um, an IP address is not actually going anywhere because there was no DHCP server. Right. And I don't know why it does this, but it's annoying. Um, so then the next thing that you often do in a Windows environment or on a Windows network is you have DNS. That's awesome. And then you have DHCP, and you set up the DHCP and the DNS to talk to each other so that you can actually type uh, the names of a server, have it look it up in DNS, and find whatever IP address was recently handed out to that server or that box by DHCP. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that you have a box and it has two IP addresses. One is real and the other one goes nowhere. And Windows will register both of those in DNS. And now 50% of your DNS queries will go to an IP address that's not actually there and the other 50% will go to the IP address that is there. Right. Which, um, like I say, took me a week, took a week off my life (laughs) as I tried to figure out why on earth this was happening. Yes. Yeah, no, it's, it can be frustrating to figure these things out. And that's why it was nice to have Willie, the author of HA Proxy, commenting. And, uh, and others who also commented that basically what we're doing doesn't really make sense, which could be the source of our problems, is what you're doing doesn't make sense. That's why you're having problems. Yeah. Um, and now the way we have it configured, actually, is all the traffic, HA Proxy is basically a router. So there's only one default right. gateway, which is the HA Proxy box, um, which means we have to route, like, uh, remote desktop and stuff like that through it. But it, it can do that. Mm. So... You have to get rid of the problem by, you know, it's a classic case of don't do that. Like, don't have two default gateways. Um, and hopefully that'll be the end of it. Yeah. 
I, in fact, I need to answer our own question and basically say that our premise was wrong <laughs> and indicate our new network configuration. Close the loop on that. Cool. So do we have any uh, user-submitted questions? Um, like questions? Yes, yeah. we do. Oh, this is going to be one of those where's the question things, isn't it? <laughs> Everybody fill that out on your bingo sheet. Uh, I have a couple. They're sort of on different subjects. Okay, well, you, you're the... Well, here's a question by Steve from, from Louisville, kind of about meta, which I don't really want to talk about, but anyway. Hey, guys, this is Steve from Louisville, Kentucky, or Louisville, if you're from an English-speaking nation. I had a question for you about etiquette and meta. Um, coming from Stack Overflow initially, where there's uh, fairly firm guidelines that you know, politeness is uh, <laughs> greatly appreciated and rudeness it just isn't very well accepted, moving into meta... Um, I, I was a little bit shocked when I found out that, you know, basically the, the norm on meta is to downvote without any kind of reasons if you don't like something and just leave it at that. Um, thinking about it, I'm curious, I guess primarily, if you've given any thought towards trying to, uh, I guess, clean up the etiquette on meta, make it a little bit more polite for people who may even be just asking for stupid things out of Stack Overflow, which I'll admit my questions were. Um, but for the uh, for the sake of Stack Exchange, trying to find out a way to kind of rescue, um, you know, basically a, a Stack Overflow driven site from you know kind of that rude mentality, which could potentially sink a, a future Stack Exchange site. Thanks much. Well, I don't. I will say that with regards to Meta, I mean it's definitely a looser environment because it's kind of like the back room. This is for people that. Are fairly invested in Stack Overflow and or the other one of the other Trilogy sites, and they want to, you know, talk about how the site runs. So it's it's more discussiony. Number one. So there's there's really two things. One is that mm-hmm. it is more acceptable to do fun and silly things on Meta because it's. I mean, we're not really answering questions there. The, mm-hmm. the goal is just discussion, and part of discussion is to be enjoyable and have fun within reason. Obviously, if it gets ridiculous, I will go in and delete. If there's huge comment threads that are just pointless, I will just. There's a moderator function to delete all the comments, and I actually have done that today. In fact, um, so you, we do want people to stay on topic, and the topic is Stack Overflow trilogy, right? Anything about the sites. Um, so that's what gets enforced is, you know, be on topic, talk about Stack Overflow in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, more of a threshold of fun. Uh, it's more discussion-y. So I think within those parameters, I feel like meta does stay reasonably civil. Like I haven't seen major, I mean, there have been flare-ups, uh, which we deal with in, in a variety of different ways. Now, as far as applying that to Stack Exchange, I think the central rule is, you know, how discussion are you going to be? What, what, how tight is your topic? <laughs> the more broad your topic, the more unanswerable the questions, the, the more you're going to have this problem. So, I mean, that would be the key piece of advice. If, if you're thinking about starting a Stack Exchange site, like have a really, not really narrow, but a reasonably narrow topic. Um, yeah, it was that, the, that can be answered. The, the, the narrowness, I think, that really worked for us was it has to be a question that has an answer. It can't be subjective. It can't be, what's your favorite programming language? <laughs> it, you know, that doesn't have an answer, and that's what leads to religious wars. Whereas, whereas you know, asking how do I you know, do X with Y. Right. Like a, I mean, even on Meta, let me use Meta as an example. You might have a question about, like, why on Stack Overflow when I click this do I get this specific behavior? Right. Is that by design? Is that a bug? 
Um, I mean, that's that's pretty pretty narrow and specific. But we also have to allow things like, you know, what constitutes spam? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you define spam? And there's mm-hmm. no real good perfect answer to that. Right. Um, th- there's a certain element of discussioniness to that. Right. So, right. I think there's aspects of both. So I think you're right, Steve, to look at meta and think about Stack Exchange in it terms is. of how you define your topic. I think I think this the the the, the problem with meta a little bit to me is if it's going to be the back room for advanced users that's awesome, but if it's also the place where the newbies go because they're confused, that's sort of where you run into trouble. So it's almost like you go to the bar and it's a biker bar and there's all <laughs> kinds of nasty Harley guys and stuff like that and they're throwing beer on each other and they're screaming and they're getting into fights and stuff like that. And you're a newbie and you're like, what the hell is going on here? This is scary. So the first thing you do is you go down to the basement where there's a poker game going on. <laughs> a bunch of guys with guns who play poker there permanently. Mm-hmm. So that's the wrong, that's kind of the wrong newbie move, right? You were already in over your depth, and so you went in deeper. <laughs> right. You are going. Well, I uh, think you have to, I think you have to like adventure. I mean, I think you have to be the kind of user. I mean, Stack Overflow <laughs> is really designed for. You shouldn't have to care about any of this crap to use Stack Overflow. People should be nice. Yeah. I'm sorry. People should be nice, and people should be nice on Meta, and people that aren't nice and aren't nice on Meta should just be banned. Down well, I, I, I really don't agree that people haven't necessarily been nice. I think people don't like being downvoted. I think there's different attitudes towards what downvoting means yeah. and how people react to it. Um, but true, I will true, true. I, 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 And this do may not be a specific, but there are people that are just not nice. And yes. and they're they're just mean and and they're not even being mean funny you know they're not even funny mean and right no 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 those we people don't know who they no. are and we've told them we sent them email and I will find them and I will come to their house and I will kill them <laughs> no we don't we don't tolerate incivility or, or meanness I mean if it's yeah. if if it's, you're just being mean to someone that's obviously out of bounds and we we do enforce that um, but there's a lot of poking fun there's a yeah. lot of just silliness that goes on and I yeah. I don't have a problem with silliness um, as long as like I said it doesn't overwhelm the question like if there's <laughs> like and again to give a specific example, there's like 20 comments. They're all just like variations on a meme. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, how does this really contribute? This is just noise. I'm just gonna go and delete it all. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no content there. Mm-hmm. It's just a bunch mm-hmm. of people just goofing off in the comments. Uh, so that that to me is the bar. As long as there's some signal there that's that's re- relatively easy to pull out, I'll tolerate a certain amount of fun on Meta. All right, uh, but I'm not gonna let it overwhelm the site. All right, thank you, Steve from Louisville, from that question. Here's Brian McKay from Tampa. We've had a question from him before, haven't we? I can't I recall. Know. We're down to like about four or five people to listen to this podcast, and <laughs> they all ask a us couple questions. of them still call in. Hey guys, this is Brian McKay in Tampa. Uh, my question is: uh, with technology, um, things are changing so fast. They've been changing for so long. It occurred to me that there aren't that many guys out there like Joel who have been at this for you know so many years. Cobalt programmers. No offense, but um. You know, most most developers do burn out in under under years, I would say, and I wonder what happens with with things just growing taller and taller and wider and wider, even with all the abstractions that are leveled on top of them. What happens in twenty years when those guys kind of start to retire? Um, because I don't know very many developers who still who still know um, kind of a really <laughs> low level building blocks. Most of us work at a much higher level these days. So that's my question. Keep up the great work, guys. That, that is kind of weird. I'm always surprised like an intern will come in here and, uh, and know something that they've never had to use because it's technology that's too primitive for their age. You know, like they, must have been, they must have been doing computer archaeology to have learned these things, like pointers. Although mm. we do sort of expect them to know pointers. But, um, you know, they'll actually, they'll actually go back and, you know, I'll hear an intern say, 
well, you know, it's in the EAX register. That's got to be the return value. It's about to return. And you're like, what? How do you know about registers? How do you even know what a register is? What? <laughs> Why do you know that? You must have been doing some kind of, I mean, they, they still, it's true that we still have registers. Well, they still, they still teach some of that they stuff. They still teach some of that stuff. That's right. And the problem, I think what helps is that the computer science departments haven't changed a single thing in 25 years. <laughs> So people are they're still blithely teaching people about, you know, how to how to compact things so that they're really, really small. So what's the heart of this question though? It's like I'm how not do really you... sure. Was it, what's it like to be an old guy? What's it like to be a new guy? No, I think I think his question is about the layers of abstractions. Which is that it's sort of like my my problem with the Java schools is that is that if if you were to come in today and let's say that you're working at the at an application level. So an application level means you're in an insurance company working on that claim form for a particular insurance company for a particular business unit. And you're, you, you go to, I don't know, Microsoft. I don't know how you do this. You go to call up Scott Hanselman personally. And you say, what development tool should I use? I'm, I'm, I'm new. I'm fresh. I don't know anything about anything. Nothing. Zero. Tell me what development tools to use. And they'll say, you know, our latest, uh, the latest, you know, shizzle thingamajiggy, whatever, the coolest, neatest, awesomest thing is. I don't know what they would say. They keep changing their mind. But let's go with, uh, I don't know, Silverlight with uh, right. an ASP.NET MVC backend and some kind of data binding. I don't know. Anyway, you, you do something like this. And, so, you know, for a while, they start doing the, what I call the one-handed programming, where you sit on your left hand, you use your right hand with the mouse, and you click, and you drag things on, and you click, and you drag things on, and you associate various controls that you've dragged onto your surface with various fields in your database that somebody smarter than you put there. And lo and behold, it sort of starts kind of working, sort of, kind of. And then mm -hmm. um, at, at some point, it doesn't work. Something doesn't work. So, for example, there's something that you can't do with a point and a click and a drag. Maybe it's a form with a subform. Maybe it's a form with a subform that does a spell checker. Maybe it's, I don't know. But there's something, and you're just looking at all the properties and all the behaviors and all the various things, and you just can't do it whilst sitting on your left hand anymore. So you pull out your left hand, you get your keyboard again, and you're like, oh, my God, now I have to write some code. Now, at this point, you are smacking up against this massive wall because the number of things you have to learn to write those three lines of code is just absolutely insane. You have to learn kind of everything. Mm -hmm. Because you've been dealing with these abstractions that have been awesome and have been allowing you to build your database-driven claim forms application really, really easily. Uh, and now suddenly you want to do something that's a little bit exceptional, a little bit different, and you have to know how to do everything that's in the stack, kind of. You have to learn how to do it yourself. So you've gone from being basically a library user to a library writer all of a sudden. You need to have the... the and... and, and uh, I think that's kind of that's kind of a, a pretty strong problem because when you look at you know what it takes to be a good developer these days, I feel like you kind of have to know that stuff. For example, even though there's no technical reason why, let's say it's ASP.NET Web Forms, uh, you, there's no technical reason why you would need to even know HTML to use that, right? You could just stay in design mode in, in Visual Studio all day long. Um, well, I like your distinction of library users versus library writers that's a really interesting way to look at it yeah it's just it's sort of that it's, it's sort of that I, I don't want to say there's a steep learning curve there's a nice shallow learning curve but then you hit a wall where it gets like a, you hit a cliff uh and i hit that I, I just to give you a classic example i literally i hit that cliff last night uh it's a, it, the problem never really goes away and I'll, I'll i'll tell you the story i was trying to write um i wanted to write a little simulation for complicated reasons. I wanted a simulation 
of, key, of uh, keys typing at a command line prompt. So I actually wanted to make a little video, basically, that shows letters appearing line by line in a command prompt. As if, mm -hmm. as if you were at a 300 baud modem and they were appearing slowly. Like, Anyway, I wanted, I wanted this simulation, and I, I can write a little bash script, and the little bash script was able to do echo, but I really wanted to echo one character at a time and sleep between each character, so it would be tick, 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 like that without the sound. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a million Java applets that'll do this, and I, but I just wanted it to look, I wanted it in terminal on a Macintosh. That's, that's just what I wanted. And uh, suddenly, and I never learned bash programming because I used to use, what was it, C shell, and not, I've forgotten it all, so I don't really know shell program, Unix shell programming oh. um, because there's just almost no reason to. And now suddenly I had to do a loop and I had to get a single character out of a string and echo it without the new line and um, increment a pointer. And there was all this stuff that I suddenly had to know how to do uh, using the bash shell. And it was, would have taken me you know, an hour to look up all that stuff and learn all that stuff. And luckily, I just found somebody that had that exact snippet of code and I was able to cut and paste. But, um, <laughs> but it's, sort of, it's sort of a classic example of like, as soon as I'm trying to do something that I don't actually know how to do, I need to learn 27 things to do that thing, and I'm just sort of stuck. Right. There's so just too much my, background that you're missing. Yeah. And you know what? I don't know if other people feel this way, but I, I sort of feel like no matter what, when I'm, if I'm programming, the chances that I actually know how to do what I have to do are just becoming slimmer and slimmer and slimmer the more time goes on. It's not because I'm getting stupider. It's because there's, there's, there's larger and larger amounts of technology that, that, that one would have to know. So, whereas my first internship at Microsoft, all I had to knew, know to do my job was basically KNRC, and that was it. And, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, by the, sec by the time I was back at Microsoft, I had to learn some Windows programming, and that was already a, an API that was hundreds of times larger, and there were chapters and chapters and chapters you had to learn just to allocate memory uh, in the original Windows programming, because you had to allocate it, and then you had to lock it, and then you had to unlock it, and you had, to, you had these handles and pointers, and... So don't you think there's going to be, as a result, more specialization then in software development? Uh, I mean, that would, that, that would theoretically solve it, right? You can say, okay, I'm totally specialized. Um, but, but somehow you always wind up working on something that's not your specialty. Well, I think there's algorithmic stuff that's universal. Sure. I mean, even for web apps. We write I mean, one algorithm a year. I, I was just asking people that at lunch <laughs> the other day. When was the last time you wrote code that had an algorithm in it? There's an a kid algorithm. who's working wow. on search, and he's got a bunch of algorithms up on the board. But... An, an actual algorithm, like, like that's all built into your libraries. It's like, you know, what, what, what are those algorithms? I mean. Well, I, I guess largely you're just making decisions. I mean, flow control. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not really, I wouldn't call it an algorithm. I mean, it's not that fancy. It's just right. flow control. You do tons and tons of flow control. Right. I mean, loops and, you know. Yeah. If thens. And that stuff, uh, the interesting thing is a lot of that stuff is getting simpler and simpler because we're making abstractions for that too. Like, like in a programming language like Python, you hardly ever write a loop anymore. Because you're usually you're just making a, or well, you could make a loop, but you, you don't really have to. Because what you're almost always doing is doing uh, is is a is what they have they have these list comprehensions in Python, where you say do something to every item in the list and give me the list that consists of doing this thing to every item in that list. And it turns out that most of the time you're creating a loop is a loop is a mechanism for iterating over a collection. And if you already have, if your language has a better mechanism for iterating over a collection, just use that. So loops kind of go away. Well, right. I, I rarely write a classical for you know this yeah. the K and R loop. I mean, I, yeah. I do ton of for each. I mean, I'm doing for, for each, each all exactly. the time. Right, right. But even so that just, is uh, yeah. In, in, yeah, that's a little bit of an abstraction because I don't have to deal mm -hmm. with a, a counter. You know, right? You're not. You're, you're not, saying exactly. 
I'm just saying for each item in this collection, do this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could, I could certainly see that becoming even more abstract, yep. you know, uh, which is what you're describing. So, yeah. So I don't know. I think I, I, I'm not, I'm not really that worried about this field because it, I mean, it, it is still the case that the people here at Fog Creek, you know, who are, who are young, who just graduated or haven't graduated yet and they're interns, um, do seem to really know how to do stuff, even the, the, the basic stuff, even the, sorry, even the core stuff that was at the heart of the... Okay. Well, we've kind of we've touched on this before, but yeah. I, I have a little bit of a minority opinion, and I think if, if you're really fascinated by this stuff, you will actually dig as deep as you need to go to solve the problem that you have. I mean, certainly with Stack Overflow as an example, I mean, this networking stuff, we had to go really deep in stuff that we didn't know anything about, but mm-hmm. we, we enjoy digging into these problems. I mean, it's fun, even That's though we're horribly point. inefficient, right? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're starting from scratch. We don't know what we're doing, but we figure it out because we, I mean, part of it is just honestly dogged persistence. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, <laughs> right. it doesn't come down to how smart you are. It's, it's how much time you're willing to invest in these problems. And because, Before you give up. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, Jared, Jeff, and I are all, you know, addicted to computers. We love this crap. I mean, we would spend all day doing nothing but figuring out these stupid problems because we're fascinated by this crap, you know? I mean, and, and it, it's, I guess what I'm trying to say, it's surprising how often uh, tenacity is a substitute for inherent smartness. <laughs> uh, and, and it's surprisingly big, like, coefficient of how productive you are. It's just how much time you're willing to invest in that stuff. Yep. So, I mean, and that gets into people who, you know, do, you know, what was your first computer and, you know, whether computing is like a lifestyle for you or is it just a job? And that's why that question becomes so relevant because those are the people that will expend the effort necessary to solve these really hard problems. Cool. Um, see, now that just sounded like I wasn't listening to you and I was just spacing out. That's fine. Playing it, solitaire. It was a little bit of a rant, so. Let's do some. You know what we didn't do last week? Uh, we should take some questions from, from, from the family of sites, the trilogy. Okay. Some of well, I kind of mentioned one that. on server fault already. Oh, but, okay. Uh, so I'll, I'll, do, I'll, I'll do one. Let's see what I got on here. I'll, 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 what's, what's our site called? Stack Overflow. Clearing cookies. No, I don't want that one. I don't want that one. Uh, okay, let's go down here to my favorites. <laughs> well, I kind of go. Where are they? Wait, wait can wait, I wait. talk about Can I talk about this one? This is funny. Yeah. Uh, so on SuperUser, I was just going to the monthly tab and just seeing what's on there. And one of the top monthly questions, how can I gently explain to non-techie friends they are the victim of a hoax? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think that the standard answer is like Snopes, right? Like, although Snopes has this weird... Well, you know, you know that thing about Snopes, right? Yeah, I think, we, I think we might have talked about that. But Snopes itself is a little weird. And I think XKCD yeah. has a cartoon about it as well. Uh, but uh, that's, that's a great super user. That's not a question I would have thought of as a valid question for super user, but it really totally is, right? I mean, if you're if you a skilled a user, user. Well, part of your job as being a super user, as a skilled user, is, is gently tending to people who aren't super users, right? Like, how yeah. do you help them help themselves? Oh, God. It's not easy. Sometimes it's not just a hoax. You know, I, was, I, I, um, you know, I, I have my uh, sister-in-law, or whatever the correct term is, has a computer that's about three, three and a half years old, and... Every single operation she tries to do with it takes about forty-five minutes. You know, like bring up the web browser, forty-five minutes elapse, and then you click on something, and forty-five minutes go on. You click on something else, and then it crashes. And um, so she brought over her laptop for me to fix it, and I spent basically I ran down the battery because she hadn't brought the power adapter with her. I ran down the battery doing as much as I could do, and I got rid of one gratuitous and incorrect error message that it was displaying every time she rebooted, but I mm-hmm. couldn't do anything else to fix it. 
And I was like, this is, you're, you're at the point now where, you know, I'm kind of an expert. I've spent about three hours on this. If you had to pay me what an expert would charge for this, that would have been about 300 bucks right there. Uh, you're, you probably need a new hard drive, or you definitely need more memory for this computer. Your keyboard is missing some keys that don't work when you press them, and your screen is starting to dim. Just go buy a new computer at this point. Throw, the, throw that whole thing away. Yeah. So, so this Garrett. is another problem that we all face of like trying to gently tell our tell, tell our loved ones that their computer is, is is obsolete, and next time they better get a Mac because they're going to the Genius Bar. Yes. Although I will say that you know one thing that really surprised me about Windows Seven mm-hmm. is that I actually have UAC, mm-hmm. the user account protection, the pseudo Unix don't run as admin thing. Mm-hmm. I actually have that on still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is the first time I've ever had that on. Yeah. Well, Vista. And was it just really. Broken. It really doesn't bug you now. It's great. Like yeah. it rarely bugs me. Yeah, it's awesome. It's just letting you do it, just to do whatever it wants. So I, I, I will actually go on a limb here and say for, for users who, you know, their system gets totally corrupted and they get all these viruses, I will say that tentatively Windows Seven might actually work for them. Uh, I, mean, I mean it might eliminate a lot of these uh, viruses. Potentially. Things. I mean yeah. this is this is known as the dancing bunny problem, which is that users will do whatever it takes to click on the dancing bunnies, mm-hmm. you know, type mm-hmm. in their password, you know, give you all their credentials. Um I don't know how you protect a user like that from themselves, but as long as you have a user who is at least cognizant of, okay, when you get this alert that comes up that says, hey, this is a really serious thing, you're actually going to read it <laughs> and pay attention to it, uh, then potentially that could save you. So, I will say that. So but did you find a question? Oh. Yeah, I got a good question. It's, uh, it's my favorite. What is the worst real-world macro slash preprocessor abuse you've ever come across? 652788. <laughs> There's one that's really scary in there. I've seen that one. I know it's hilarious. It's the define. It's my. It's it's absolutely. It's it's voted. It's voted up uh, second second to most. Wait, how does that even work? Um, <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> this one just made me laugh out loud. Uh, pound define in a locked increment of x as x plus <laughs> plus. Nice. Um. So these, for, for those of us who don't speak the C language, what we're doing is we're redefining text in the file. Yes. So anytime we see this interlocked string, increment. Yes. yes. Now, interlocked increment is, is, the, is the guaranteed safe increment oper- operator that's guaranteed to be atomic. Because in order to increment uh, a variable, you have to read it, and then you have to, to see what it was, and then you have to add one, and they have to write it back. And if you do that in a non-atomic way, then there's a possibility that you read it, somebody else reads it, you increment it, they increment it, you write it out, and they write it out, and now it should have gone up by two, but it only went up by one. Get it? So interlocked increment is this thing, it's a, it's a Windows API that guarantees that those two, those two instructions, the read, the increment, and the write, basically those three, uh, low-level operations will happen uh, atomically without uh, the processor um, you know, switching to another process. And without interlocked increment and interlocked decrement, similarly, it is impossible to uh, ever write thread, thread safe code. You're going you're to have problems that only show up when the processor happens to interrupt your process in between those two, the reading and the writing. Um, so it creates these kind of bugs that are like once in a lifetime, terrible, terrible bugs that don't make any kind of sense. Uh, if, if you just increment instead of using interlocked increment and interlocked decrement. And this is the most hilarious preprocessor definition because it basically removes that protection from your code for some reason. Well, what I find crazy is that people 
why would this even be allowed? Why would you? I mean, this is part of the whole argument of that C is just kind of dangerous. You can just randomly redefine keywords yeah. in the language sure. to some other completely different keyword. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, that seems a little dangerous. It's very powerful. No, I mean, C is, C is a car. It's very dangerous. It doesn't have seatbelts, but it's very powerful because it goes very fast. Um, in fact, uh, I, I would go so far as to say, and this, some people are going to punch me about this one, but you cannot write multi-threaded code in, in the C programming language. You just can't. Although technically all the capabilities are there, it is beyond the capability of, of mortal humans. And I know some of you out there are very smart and you think that you have the capability of writing multi-threaded code in the C programming language because you're hot shit. Well, let me tell you, it is beyond the capability of humans on this planet for their brains. Their brains are just not adequate to the task. Of, of writing multi-threaded multi code in most languages, least of all low-level languages like C. It, it's just not going to work. It's just not going to make you happy. So there. Hey, you actually answered this question. This is cheating. I did not. I commented on it. Oh, no, yeah, I answered. did answer. You're right. I didn't see that one. <laughs> you defined ever. So yeah. Forever. I don't deserve 35 <laughs> points for that. Uh, well, it's a community wiki. Well, actually, no, it's not. Wow. Yeah, you did get a lot of points for that. How did... Oh, I'm going to make this wiki. That's what? weird. <laughs> Wait, I think what happened is it slipped through and it didn't get switched what over. What slipped through? It's, it is community. The question's community wiki. The answer's not? Yeah, there are ways that can happen. No, there's, what about, what about the, the, the winning answer? Those are not community. Well, they are now. I just changed them. Huh. Just, a, just a little blip. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, you were getting a lot of rep for that. This is almost as bad but as you made them turtle. All, you made all the answers community wiki. Oh, is that yeah. like a? Yeah, it's a moderator function. Um, you, you actually have it. Um, this is almost as bad as the logo question. I should point that out. The moving the turtle question, which is travesty of questions. <laughs> um, I, for, the, for for those that don't know what they in the question, he says no contrived I O C C C answers. Um, that is the International Obfuscated C Coding Contest or something. I might have it wrong. But it, it, was this, it was this contest where different people submitted code that almost always by using the preprocessor um, created the most, the most obfuscated possible code. And they were usually these things that looked like this big, gigantic ASCII art heart or, or Snoopy or something. And it was actually code that actually ran. And um, I, I don't know what the status of that, of that contest was, but, but it's some pretty awesome stuff uh, as you're learning the C programming language because it's sort of fun to try to parse those and see what the hell is going on. So I have a funny Twitter message I want to uh, read to you. This yeah. is from Rick Strahl, which you may know Rick from the web. But his, twi his Twitter message was, Oh man, C++ is like watching an old movie you remembered fondly and then finding out that it really sucked. <laughs> That's my obligatory C jab. C, I don't remember C++, finally. Okay. Uh, Do we have, uh, did we have three questions submitted? Audio questions? No, we only had two. Only two. Sorry. Okay. New news on dev days. That's coming up pretty uh, soon. I, I don't have that it. much. We have a few, there, there might be a few seats left in Seattle because we opened up another 100 seats when we moved into this Ben Arroyo concert hall, which is going to be awesome. Oh, cool. Uh, we, still have, uh, we still have room, I think, in LA and Austin and maybe a couple other seats because people cancel occasionally and 
So, you know, something frees up. So if you didn't get in the city you want to be in, you know, keep keep trying. And, and uh, there's always a waiting list you can join and you'll get notified if uh, a couple of seats open up. But in most of these cases, we're just like literally filling a concert hall. So there's literally no flexibility. I mean, we can't make more seats or do standing room only. The fire marshal will come by and shut the whole thing down. Exactly. We can't have that. It's, uh, it's yeah, it's stack overflow, overflow. <laughs> we should have a separate room for that. Uh-huh. This is the Stack Overflow Overflow room. Um, why don't you do the announcements? Oh, the final trail out? Yeah. Okay. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't ready. You kind of jumped the gun on me here. <laughs> I'm not the only person <laughs> that doesn't know the phone number of the Stack Overflow podcast. That's right. Hotline. So we answered two questions today. We'll try to answer two more tomorrow. We have a dedicated phone number you can call to leave audio questions at 646-826-3879. Or you can record your own audio. Uh, 90 seconds or less, please, and mail it to podcast at stackoverflow.com. Uh, we also have a transcript wiki for people who can't listen to the podcast, can benefit from our jibba-jabba. Uh, that will be linked in the show notes. And anything else I'm forgetting, Joel? Nope. Blog.stackoverflow.com is a show, show notes with electronic hyperlinks to various things that we've mentioned Yep. on today's episode. I'm, now I'm starting to come down with whatever it is that you have. I'm just feeling like... <laughs> I, don't think it's, I don't think it's contagious over Skype. Over, Skype is really good. I heard Skype is... Uh, it's not eBay anymore. <laughs> it's not good enough to transmit viruses. All right. They're still working on that. See you next week. See you next week. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.